There's a lot of great songs that you can get out of just a guitar, bass, and maybe a keyboard every now and then. But every once in a while, it does take that little extra something to spice up a song and really set it apart from everything else. Sometimes it's just a matter of a different guitar pedal or a synth patch, but a few times artists will learn an entirely new instrument from scratch. Sometimes for just one song, others getting a permanent place on a band's list of gear. But whenever some instruments come out, just the look of them can shock a crowd. And sometimes it's not even a traditional instrument, just an everyday tool or object that is just been found to make music. So let's talk more about that this week on The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music and pop culture. Sometimes beautiful music can be found in the weirdest places. For example, wet your finger, run it around the rim of a wine glass. Often you can get a really cool sound from that. And if you fill up a bunch of different wine glasses with different amounts of water, you can actually play that as a musical instrument. And that actually goes all the way back to 14th century Persia. It's usually called the Cristallophone or glass harmonica. And it did have a French following for a few centuries, but it also had its moment in the mainstream spotlight as well. In the mid 1700s, an Irish musician, Richard Pockridge, invented a variation called the glass harp. He toured around England until 1759 with this instrument, when he unfortunately died in a fire. But his invention did carry on among some musical circles. And in the 1760s, Ben Franklin was visiting England and attended a Cristallophone recital, and he got inspired to innovate on this instrument himself, creating what was called the harmonica by attaching 37 glass bowls along a spindle, and in some cases, color-coding the bowls by what notes they played to make it easier to play. And this new version allowed for 10 notes to be played at once, which was near impossible just on wine glasses or regular Cristallophones. It also allowed for longer notes, and because of the way that it plays and was put together, it never needed to be tuned. This version of the glass harmonica got immensely popular, mostly because of its beautiful and very unique sound. Many composers of the time also created music centered around the harmonica, including Mozart, Beethoven, Johann Haas, and Marie Antoinette also learned to play it as a child. But the popularity that this instrument had didn't last much longer than the 18th century. As concert halls got bigger and more crowded, it was difficult for the harmonica to produce loud enough sounds to reach everyone, so other instruments pretty easily overpowered it. Plus, because it was made of glass, it was pretty easy to break, especially if you were moving it around a lot. But one of the big reasons it fell out of vogue was because of some strange rumors about it. A lot of German musicologists claimed that it could cause melancholy in both musicians and listeners, causing them to go mad, saying in one music journal, don't play it if you have any nervous disorders or if you're feeling sad. Only play uplifting pieces if possible too. It was also thought that because glass harps or harmonicas were made with lead glass, it would cause lead poisoning. But there wasn't any real scientific basis for the hypothesis that touching lead glass would cause lead poisoning, which was pretty common everywhere back then because lead was in a lot of different things. The glass harmonica has made appearances in more modern compositions since it's fade into obscurity, however. Coming back in the 1930s, 
and used occasionally for neoclassical works ever since. It can even be heard in some film scores, including the 1999 thriller The Minus Man and sci-fi movies like The Faculty and Star Trek II. And of course, it wasn't the only instrument that was inspired by everyday objects. There were others that were made of everyday things pretty common a long time ago too, usually in the form of cigar box guitars, wash tub basses, but it just goes to show that anything that can make a noise can also be an instrument if you work on it enough. In fact, one of Frank Zappa's earliest appearances on TV was in 1963 on The Tonight Show, hosted back then by Steve Allen, and Frank Zappa played a bicycle as a musical instrument. Also around that time in the 60s, sound engineers started creating some of the early synthesizers and making really early rudimentary forms of electronic music. But for the most part in the 1960s, that music was confined to universities and laboratories until a band called Silver Apples formed in New York's East Village. Singer for that band, Simeon Cox, found an audio oscillator from the 1940s and started incorporating it into his band. Back then, they used these oscillators to make super basic audio signals on things like calculators, clocks, and later on as tone generators for radio and TV. But he discovered that with a little playing around, you could get some music out of them. But most of the other members didn't really take to it, and so that band just became Simeon and drummer Danny Taylor. They changed their name to Silver Apples, and they released an album that did all right at the time, but over even more time, more and more listeners discovered it and realized just how ahead of the times that this album really was, basically becoming the first electronic music album. There was one electronic instrument that had been around for a few decades already, too, a device called a theremin, which is played by moving your arms in the air between two antennae, and those antennas sense where your hands are, and they make a noise accordingly. This instrument was the result of Russian experimentation with proximity sensors at the start of the Russian Civil War, right around 1920, by Leon Theremin. Eventually, he moved to the U.S. and patented his creation in 1928. And after the instrument started appearing more often at the end of World War II, there was a cult following for it. But it only had a bit of a niche interest for people who liked electronics and also because of the eerie sounds that it makes. It ended up finding a lot of use in movie scores and even some rock music. Notable players include Jimmy Page, who used it live while playing Whole Lotta Love and No Quarter during Led Zeppelin performances. Brian Jones from The Rolling Stones used it in 1967, and Nine Inch Nails used it live in the past, usually played by former live member Charlie Clouser. And both oscillators and theremins played a big part in the creation of main analog synthesizers. And of course, the rest is history. And it wasn't just electronic music creating new strange instruments in the 20th century. In 1969, a jazz guitarist named Emmett Chapman started using this two-handed tapping technique to play his guitar. That technique was later used by Genesis guitarist Steve Hackett and canned heat guitarist Harvey Mandel, who inspired Eddie Van Halen. But Emmett Chapman wanted to see just how far he could take his technique. Instead of playing the guitar, he switched to a nine-string, very long-neck guitar, but then decided to invent his own instrument to maximize the potential of this new tapping technique that he's found. Spending five years creating the Chapman Stick, along with the business to sell it. Now the Chapman Stick is sort of a mix of both a guitar and a bass. Five bass strings, with a low string in the middle, and after that, five melody strings. But unlike a guitar, there isn't a body to it. It's basically 
one gigantic fretboard with a giant headstock at the top. It's also played upright with one hand on the bass side and the other on melody, so you don't really strum it at all. It's all played entirely by pounding each note with your fingers. So in a way, it's almost like a guitar, bass, piano hybrid. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. And it really stands out when someone brings it out on stage too. But what's unique about this instrument is that while not really very common, and it has maintained relative popularity since its invention in the mid-70s. But even though it can play both rhythm and lead parts, the Chapman stick most often replaces or accentuates the bass guitar in a live setting. And besides Chapman himself, two other musicians were early adopters in mainstream music. The first being Weather Report bassist Alfonso Johnson, which got him an audition with Genesis, who were looking for a replacement for Steve Hackett. But being more of a bassist than a guitar player, he ended up turning that job down. But one of the most well-known Chapman stick players is Tony Levin, a very in-demand session musician who has played with everyone from Sarah McLachlan, Pink Floyd and Seal, to Lou Reed, James Taylor, and Lawrence Gowan. But he is best known for his work with Peter Gabriel, as well as King Crimson, both of which he has used the Chapman stick extensively in. Other well-known stick players include Kajigugu bassist Nick Beggs, John Mayer trio bassist Pino Palladino, Mike Oldfield, and Jeff Ammon of Pearl Jam. So any bass players listening, if you really want to stand out or even just challenge yourself, think about picking up a Chapman stick. Many other bands and artists have added odd instruments into their songs and into live performances as well. Les Claypool from Primus has many weird combinations of basses, fusing them into banjos, resonator guitars, and he also plays something called a whamola, which is a upright one-string bass instrument played by hitting a string with a drumstick and then moving the whammy bar that's made at the top to change the notes. Another performer, uh, Mike Silverman, who goes by the stage name That One Guy, he makes his music entirely with homemade instruments, the best known being something called the Magic Pipe, which is a combination of bass strings and MIDI triggers to make sounds, and they're all placed across these two aluminum pipes that are welded together. A lot of folk metal bands will often mix traditional folk instruments from their home regions into their music as well, such as bagpipes, mandolin, hammered dulcimers, and the hurdy-gurdy. And while it wasn't as common in North America, there would be a handful of bands over on this side of the Atlantic that would shake things up too. Bassist Sean Malone of Cynic and Gordian Knot and Brian Bourne of Newfoundland band Rollins Cross both played the Chapman stick. And Southern Rocker's Jackal used a chainsaw as an instrument on many of their songs. And the new metal band Moto Grader, an early project of Five Finger Death Punchless lead singer, used a homemade instrument of the same name. Basically, a larger, more distorted and threatening looking slide guitar. So learning a new instrument can add a lot more presence into your live show. And they can be a lot of fun to play when you get the hang of them. So if you're looking for something to spice up your listening habits, Look for bands that play some sort of weird instrument that you've never heard about before. And I promise you, you're gonna have a blast. And now, I think it's time to go back in time a bit. We're gonna take a look at when one of these instruments made it into a charting album. Back to this week in 1982 for Still the Number One. So I had no idea just how many great albums came out in 1982. Almost uh, a transition, if you will. Uh, with music in the 80s. And we saw it more as we got towards the like 1984, 1985 area. But, you know, we're seeing it 
start to take off in 1982 and that's where you're getting a lot of these uh, great albums come into play definitely like at the beginning of each decade there's always those transitional years when the old music of the previous decade starts to slowly fall out of favor but then the new stuff comes in and i think 1982 is really where that comes in and especially with all these bangers of albums just on the charts right now like number one right now john cougar american fool great album a fantastic album, probably one of the best from John Cougar for that oh. matter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the top 10 alone is just fantastic. In at number 10, uh, the Who's It's Hard album. Yeah. And that was, I think, probably the last Who album that uh, the world ended up getting until the 2000s, too, because, like, this was after Keith Moon died. Like, I think this was their first album without him, but still the rest and still gave us some great songs, too, including the song that you hear in every Ford commercial over the past three or four years. Oh, yes. I forgot about I See, I don't have uh, cable TV or anything like that, so like, I completely forgot about it. Uh, in at number nine, Chicago's Chicago 16. And this is actually one of many albums that I have from 1982 in my vinyl collection. I was just listening to this one a while ago. And, you know, Chicago, they kind of changed up their sound with each album. Like, the 70s they Chicago... Did. Yeah, but this is, I think, where they really like reach their peak 80s sound. It is just a great album through and through. Great songs and really well produced. And like you said there, yeah, they kind of changed their sound in each album, especially in the 70s, though they kind of kept that orchestral big band sound to it. And then as soon as the 80s hit and they realized music in the 80s was changing as well, they needed to change up their act a bit too. Yeah, and it did end up working out for them, at least for the first half of the 80s. For sure, absolutely. Second half of the 80s, we want to talk about. Uh, number eight was the Go-Go's Vacation album. Yeah, and I, while I'm not too familiar with the Go-Go's, I think like a lot of their bigger hits, and especially the stuff that we would know, probably came off this album. Oh, yeah, uh, of course it is, and that's, you know, the the album that kind of solidified it and what made their presence known in uh, radio in that uh, in that year in just in general as well uh, a vacation itself as a song there's lots of times where i just like i need a vacation and that song just like starts playing right then at number seven alan parsons project with their i think their biggest album eye in the sky and alan parsons probably more influential as a producer and an engineer but he is just brilliant all around especially on this album like it showcases his great voice his great playing it's great when you hear alan parsons project the song that you think of right away is eye in the sky oh totally and uh yeah i i don't even know if he had like another big single on that hit radio I know there was one other song that got pretty big, but it was it was an instrumental song. I think it was from the 70s, though. Uh, Michael McDonald, uh, and If That's What It Takes, it was in at number six. Yeah. When you think of Michael McDonald, do you think of Family Guy? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay, great. I'm, I'm not the only one. Great voice, love his singing, but yeah, that's immediately what comes to mind first. Oh, of course. And, and yeah, like before you hear, you, you know, Doobie Brothers going through your head, that's what you hear uh, is the is the Family Guy bit. And number five, Billy Squire's Emotions in Motion album, which is a fantastic album as well. It is. I I wish 
Billy Squire got got better. Like he deserved so much better. Great musician, had that charisma, had a great voice. But then later on in the 80s would make a pretty terrible career move. Billy Squire though, like the only song that you really hear most often these days is The Stroke. Yeah. And yeah. and there were so many other great songs that he had. Emotions in Motion is one of them. There was Everybody Wants You as well. It was just fantastic. But yeah, it's uh, it's a shame that the only one you really hear is The Stroke. Yeah, but if you're looking for more great 80s hard rock deep cuts, Billy Squire, definitely an artist you want to check out. And number four, Bruce Springsteen with, I think this is his first like completely solo album without the E Street Band. It's Nebraska, but this is actually an album of demos. Did you know that? I didn't. Uh, I did not. Yeah, the whole story with this was Bruce Springsteen. He spent a few months just at his house. This was like all recorded without a studio, just him and a four track tape recorder, just laying down some stuff with an acoustic guitar and a harmonica, all recorded in his house. I think even in his bedroom. Like, this is like lo fi singer-songwriter stuff at its most intimate. And even though it's not like ideal, perfect recording sessions, it sounded great. And when Bruce Springsteen showed this to his label, they legitimately thought that it was recorded in studio and just released it as is. Which is pretty good for the 80s. It is, like, even nowadays, it'd be really hard to do that. True, true. I mean, everybody is kind of working from home anyway and i know a lot of the artists these days have been recording stuff from home and it's actually sounded fantastic the one thing i will say though is when they did that one world together at home thing that lady gaga and elton john organized it drove me nuts how many of these artists that did these performances that weren't doing it in like soundproofing rooms and stuff like that like it was so echoey Right? Like, they had so many resources, so many people at their disposal who were obviously wanting to work, and they could have done it. Like, even, like, you don't even need a big lighting crew. You don't need a big crew. You just need, like, a camera person and maybe, like, one lighting person. You could do that social distance, no problem. But no, they had to, like, try and, like, match with the feel that everyone else was doing. Like, don't do that. You have the resources. Use them. That's what we want. As you can tell, we're definitely audio geeks when it comes to this. Uh, we are, and we are we are really waving that nerd flag. Oh yeah, immediately. Oh, I, like when I was moving into my new place, I was like going from room to room to figure out where exactly I could set everything up with no echo. Number three, Steve Miller Band and Abracadabra. The older I get, the more I appreciate what Steve Miller does. Like this album, it's it's a comeback album for him. Like it'd been a while since he'd had any major hits cuz you know, he had a lot in the 70s, but then out of nowhere just changes up his sound but still like sounds sounds like Steve Miller. Yeah. And it's just so good and so delightful and so fun. Exactly. Like there's there's not much different, even though the sound is a little bit different, the style's a little bit different. There's not much difference between Abracadabra and say take the money and run. Right? And also I even say that Abracadabra the single, it's a pretty good Halloween song. Oh yeah, totally is. Totally is. We're getting in the spooky season. That's probably why it was getting closer to number one again. Uh 
<laughs> Fleetwood Mac's Mirage album was at number two. Yeah, and I kind of feel like with the Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks era of Fleetwood Mac, this album is almost overlooked because you have it in between Tusk, which is beloved by fans just because of how experimental it is. And then you have Tango in the Night with that huge other string of hits that pretty much rivaled Rumors. Yeah. But then you just have Mirage in the middle, a great album, but it, it just gets kind of lost in the fray. I, I would agree with that. Uh, because, yeah, that's it's not one of the first Fleetwood Mac albums that anybody thinks of, for that matter. Yeah. So if you're, like, looking to use your hipster card and show off, like, oh, you think Rumors is a great album, have you heard Mirage yet? That's what the real fans like. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love Rumors, but, you know, I, I'm an equal opportunity album listener. That's a very good way of putting it. All right, keep on going down the list. Uh, Number 11, the Business as Usual album for Men at Work. Yeah, and Men at Work, they're another band that I feel like deserved more love because every time that they came on the radio, it's always a good time. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And this was very early on in the 80s to start getting into one-hit wonder territory. But yet, here we are. Uh, I, I, as you can tell, like as you get further closer to the '90s, I should say, that's where you get more of those one-hit wonders. Um, but '82, I guess, was kind of the year for Men at Work because they really only had this album that made it big. Yeah. Then in at number twelve, we have a flock of seagulls with a flock of seagulls. Speaking of one-hit wonders, there. <laughs> Yeah, and I've I've listened to Flock of Seagulls in depth before. I would have to say that I Ran is their best song, but, you know, if you like New Wave, then some of their deep cuts are actually pretty good. I, w- I would say they are, I wouldn't say they are underrated. They're perfectly rated, but it's it's more more great stuff if you want to take the time and check it out. Yeah, I Ran is definitely uh, the better song. They also have Wishing on a Photograph, uh, which kind of did okay, but not great. And then uh, I delete, aren't they like releasing new music soon or they have? Yeah, they're still together. They still tour. They have gone through phases where they hate Iran. But, you know, I think they're like back on the on the bandwagon of still playing it at their shows. So, yeah, they're still they're still putting out new stuff. I actually heard one of their newer recordings, like I say newer within the last 20 years, but they covered Madonna on a tribute album and it sounded really cool. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was a really weird lineup for that tribute album, too. Like it was new wave it was one new wave band and the the rest were industrial bands all covering madonna fantastic yeah but it worked like kmfdm did a really great cover of material girl okay uh might have to check that one out uh we got a double dose of can con uh in at number 13 was rush signals album yeah that one Again, I think probably a little bit more overlooked in Rush's yeah. catalog, but if you like 80s Rush, then you're going to love this album. And then Loverboy's Get Lucky album in at 14. I have a really weird memory specifically with this album. Okay, let's hear it. Okay, so this goes all the way back to uh, my my days at Nate. Shout out to any RTA people listening in, but we, like, similar to many radio stations, 
our walls were covered in old album covers like of music that was like still lingering in the older music library before everything went digital did you have that at uh where you went to radio school uh we had we did not have that but let me tell you my radio school god love it but you know we had uh, some older equipment that kind of covered walls instead oh yeah yeah so we had all this album art and it was this was in our newsroom too it was like an old copy of lover boys get lucky and someone drew a butthole on it uh why am i not surprised though <laughs> yeah your college kids at that point you're doing stupid crap i know but there, there's just something weird there's something weirdly endearing about it and i just giggle every time i think about that Oh, Tim is a child. I am. Uh, <laughs> and then Kenny Loggins, the High Adventure album at 15. Yeah. I actually kind of forgot that Kenny Loggins released full studio albums. I thought it's like just soundtracks. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, good old Kenny Loggins. Yep. Then number 16, Asia, with their first album, which is another album that I have in my record collection. You just have a lot from this year in your collection. Oh, I do. Like, I'm going to go down the charts. I will point out albums that I own. It'll just be like, I own that one. I own that one. I own that one. Uh, And then back to the One Hit Wonders, Survivor, Eye of the Tiger at 17. Which is a great song. And like, but not. do you think it's really enough for Survivor to get this high on the Billboard charts? They peaked at number two. Again was it really necessary (laughs) you could say that probably about a lot of the list honestly not about the clash though the clash i'm surprised did not get higher with combat rock because this right classic punk album yeah and it's still popular to this day yeah like more popular than survivor but how is it all the way down here i don't understand (sighs) people man people people then Melissa Manchester, another uh, another one-hit wonder with Hey Ricky. Not to be confused with Tony Basil's Mickey. Right? And again, it's it, it rhymes with, yeah, it just m- m- mind-boggling. Cause I now you're heard. thinking, hey, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine. <laughs> yeah, and I think even Weird Al kind of parodied that too with, because um, he his parody of Tony Basil was um, Hey Ricky and I think that's where uh, I got the association from that would be for it for you uh, and then Donna Summer's self-titled album at 20 yeah and we're starting to see kind of a Donna Summer resurgence for some of her older stuff and I'm wondering if more people are going to discover I guess almost a hidden gem from Donna Summer's catalog yeah maybe yeah Number 21, Judas Priest, Screaming for Vengeance. Another one of their very popular, very heavy album to be this high. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very. uh, This is, you know, if you looked at the Billboard Hot 100, if we were looking at the singles chart, you would never see Judas Priest crack the top 40. Yeah, but throughout the 70s, they built up a very loyal fan base. Like, it's... Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, some of the most revered of the first generation of metal bands. And of course, Judas Priest still going strong today, still 
they've even gotten better over time. Every album that and, they make, they just keep getting more awesome. And with the Billboard 200 album chart, it was purely based on sales, right? Especially back in the 80s. So, you know, that that's goes to show where that fan base was uh, coming out to play, really. Yeah. Let's see, another... Uh kind of scrolling down a little bit more number uh 25 stray cats built for speed oh yeah um not quite a one hit wonder two hit wonder though yeah uh but yeah it's just another one of those bands from the 80s that really didn't do much they didn't but i think they really found a niche that was going on like there was a bit of a resurgence for like that like 50s and 60s sounding like rock and roll you know that kind of like almost Elvis-ish yeah. sound and yeah. yeah they really leaned into it and while they never became like major major rock icons they found a niche they filled it and people people in that niche they still love that music and then also at number 28 was Ario Speedwagon's Good Trouble and this is where I call uh, story time with Scott back into play so a few weeks ago when we were recording a still the number one, I told the story about how our friend Kyle pronounced Jimmy Buffett as Jimmy Buffet. Right. And he said Rio Speedwagon, right? <laughs> Worse. So on the old system, um, it, it would cut off after 24 characters in the description blank. Mm -hmm. So lots of the time we would short form our artist names or whatever to try to get as much in there as we can because some people wouldn't read the PDF logs we would send out. Hmm. Kyle looks at the screen just for a quick half second as he's coming out of uh, Can't Fight This Feeling and he says, Red Speedwagon. Oof! I immediately, like, I hit his name in my phone and called him and he was like i was expecting you <laughs> kyle buddy <laughs> really dude oh. like uh yeah yeah that, that's all there needs to be said years after <laughs> oh there's there's just certain things that just stick with you and that one is going to stick and this was like 2014 2015 when this happened so like that one will forever stay in my mind as well yeah uh billy joel's nylon curtain debuted this week at number 29 yeah and you know again it's not the most well-known billy joel album but i know there there are a lot of really popular fan favorite songs on the nylon curtain including uh goodnight saigon which is all about the vietnam war mm, yes yeah and again, speaking of songs in kind of that vein, kind of protest stuff, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Daylight Again. Without Young. Without Young. Yeah, he kind of goes Young. in and out depending on how the other guys feel about him. I don't know. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was in at number 30. And then uh, Aerosmith's Rock in a Hard Place was at 32. Yeah, another, again, I always kind of feel like Aerosmith kind of underrated among like the classic rock rock icons, but they just keep popping up in some random places. Still a great album though. For sure. Absolutely. Can't go wrong with it. 
Yeah. No, ooh, number 38, Dire Straits, Love Over Gold. Another, I think this is like their second most popular album, right behind Brothers in Arms. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, and then number 40, the security album from Peter Gabriel. Yeah, this this was actually the album that got me wanting to talk about this chart anyways, because of uh, it's it has a weird instrument on this one. It uses something called a Chapman stick. What the hell is a Chapman stick? All right, so as I was explaining earlier in my episode, it is, it's kind of like a guitar and a bass fused together, but there's no like body. It's literally all headboard and you play it by tapping it. Okay. Yeah, so it can play like the lead and the, and the rhythm at the exact same time, but you gotta be like really good at guitar or bass to play it in fact usually it's bass players that decide to pick it up to kind of step up their game a little bit interesting that is something i do not have the coordination or patience for neither do i (laughs) uh george thorogood and the destroyers bad to the bone at 43 yeah and george thorogood another another great artist has some really good bluesy kind of sound to him there's all there's always like some sort of blues in each decade, you know that? But yeah. Yeah, George Thorogood taking it in the eighties and you know, at least until Stevie Ray Vaughan comes along. I think it's gonna be like I wonder when Stevie Ray Vaughan's first album was out. I I can't remember I off the wanna top of my head. I wanna go eighty five. Yeah. But it was like it was George Thorogood kind of dominating everything, and then Stevie Ray Vaughan just comes out of nowhere, takes everything. Takes all the hype. Uh, also debuting this week, number 48, Neil Diamond's Heartlight album. Yeah, and, you know, he is more, much more than Sweet Caroline. But you got you got to really look through his catalog to really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. Number 51, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts with Bad Reputation. Having, uh, their, having Joan Jett's other big hit of the same name. Yes, yes. Um... And that's one that it all depends on which radio station you're listening to as to whether or not you're going to hear bad reputation. Yeah. And I wish that that song would get more airplay because, you know, I love I love rock and roll, but I only love it so much. There's only so much you could take of it. Yeah. Only so much I can take. Uh, Eddie Murphy at number 52. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing this one is a comedy album. Are we sure this just didn't have Party All the Time on it? I mean, it could have. That was a good looking, song, though. I'm looking it up right now. Yeah. Nope, that is not what I wanted. If Wikipedia could help us out a little bit, that would be great. Uh, no, it did not. Really? So it was just really funny then. I'll have to check that out. Sometime. Well, it, it, I think it was a bit of comic album or comedy album and then maybe a little bit of music on this. Yeah, but I'm, I'm curious to listen to it now just to see if his jokes have aged well. Or if he's going to be ending up a part of cancel culture. That should be fun. Uh, I mean, you know, at this point, you know, the jokes have been out there for a while. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it could always come back and haunt him. We never really know. Exactly. Uh, one thing you got to remember for comedy, it was it was a different time. 
some of those jokes just aren't aren't as funny as they used to be. Number fifty-four, True. Toto Four, another album that I have. I was just about to bring that one up because I had a feeling you were going to have Toto Four. Yeah, and you know, I when I was looking through my family's old record collection and looking for stuff to rate, I was surprised to find this, but I'm so glad it's there. <laughs> nice. Uh, fifty-seven, thirty-eight specials, special forces. Yeah. And yeah, quite quite an interesting album cover. I'm not quite sure what it's supposed to be like. Is it like 38, like rising out of the ground? Is it a gun? Is it? Yeah, kind of looks like a gun to me. Yeah, still can't go wrong with 38 Special. They have a lot no, of great stuff. Elton John's Jump Up at 58. Yeah, and Elton John, I think like this was like at a time when he wasn't as popular. Like he he'd cemented himself as an icon, but. New albums just weren't selling as much. No, he was uh, he was bigger in the 70s for sure. Definitely. But I'm just going to look at the singles that were on here. So, yeah, I haven't heard any songs off of this album yet. So I'm going to have to give this a listen sometime. I mean, it did peak at number 17. So, yeah, it's, it's bound to be good. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully, unless it was just a sleeper. Uh and then also in at number 62 was the soundtrack to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, this is another album that I see get a whole lot of love and a whole lot of praise. For a soundtrack album, it has some good stuff on it too. Like all the all the big hits of the 70s. Like this was basically like what was big for rock music in the 70s. You, you could just like sum it up all in this one album. Kind of like you could sum up disco with the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yes and no. I mean, the biggest song from Fast Times at Ridgemont High was Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown. Right. Uh, There wasn't a lot more that was big, unfortunately. Really? I I thought there were some pretty big songs on it. Well, okay. So we, uh, so just some of them, like there were, there were big names on it. Not necessarily big songs. Like, you got Joe Walsh, you got Don Henley, you got the Go-Go's, you got Quarter Flash, Billy Squire, Sammy Hagar, Jimmy Buffett, Donna Summer, Stevie Nicks. You have big names on it, but the song's not so much. Right, that that is a good point. But still, the, the names on there, though. Gotta admit, yeah. that they've got some big ones there. Oh, totally. Yeah. And... Number 65, Jane Fonda's workout record. Have you heard about this one yet, Scott? I didn't even know we were going to bring up Jane Fonda. Well, I just think it's really interesting because there is actual music on here, but this would be a very annoying record to listen to because while there is music playing in the background with full singing and everything, Jane Fonda is actually giving workout instructions which makes it incredibly frustrating to listen to for fun. And who wants to put on their turntable if they're working out? I don't know. I don't know. It would be the equivalent of this day and age, turning on Alexa or Google. Probably. I don't know. It's, it's, it's weird. It's one of those concepts that I guess was good at the time, but didn't quite age well. Number 67, more CanCon, April Wine's Power Play. Which is a really great April Wine album. Yeah, um, there not much in terms of singles on this one that made it big. Uh, enough is Enough would be the biggest one. 
uh, and then their version of doing it right's on here and uh, tell me why as well yeah but really like those three songs alone can carry a whole band's career never mind just an album like it's it's so good and then at 68 alabama's mountain music another great album from probably one of the best country bands ever like even if you don't like country you'll probably like alabama I think it was this one last year, Medicine Hat Stampede. Uh, the one night show was the Hunter Brothers and Brett Kissel. And I think this is the one, either Hunter Brothers did it on their own, or they did it with Brett Kissel as well. It was fantastic. Yeah. I will say, though, if Alabama ever re-releases this album, like ever does a uh, special edition, please, for the love of God, change that album cover. Oh, Yeah. I just noticed that. Yeah. Uh, it's Alabama. Uh, <laughs> Genesis with Three Sides Live at 71. Yeah, and this was at like peak Phil Collins Genesis. Had all the big hits, had them playing them live, making them sound that much better. If you're looking for Genesis at their best, Three Sides Live, good place to start to really get a feel Absolutely. for that. Absolutely. And Genesis is a fantastic band. Yeah. Then we got Joan, Joan, Jett Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll at 73. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad at least it's charting lower here again. I Love Rock and Roll <laughs> is a great album. It peaked at number two. Peaked at number two. True, but still, Bad Reputation is the better song. Fair enough. Yeah, and we got Stevie Nicks with uh, her solo album, Belladonna. I know that this was really, really popular when it came out. Peaking at number one on the charts for 62 weeks. Yeah, it just kind of lingered and stuck around. But hey, uh, Stevie Nicks on her own was just as good as Stevie Nicks with Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Oh, and number 76, we have Pink Floyd re-entering with The Wall. After 73 weeks on the charts. Yeah. And we're going to see another Pink Floyd album still lingering around, too. Ooh, teasing. Yeah. Number 78, the E.T. soundtrack. I didn't even know the soundtrack for that was that big a deal. I, I, right? Yeah, can you name, like, can you think of a song from E.T.? Nope. No. It's not coming to me. It's not coming to me at all. Uh, and then the, the Jimi Hendrix concerts at 79. Yeah, and, you know, Jimi Hendrix, eternally popular guitar player, always going to have people interested in his stuff, even, you know... I, I'm surprised at how much music that he left behind. Like, he had posthumous albums coming out, like, well into the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But really, if you're going to experience Hendrix, you have to listen to him live. Oh, 100%. That's, like, peak Jimi Hendrix is the live stuff. Yeah. Continuing down the charts, we see Billy Squire again, but uh, right below him at number 88, we have Billy Idol with his uh, self-titled album. So many Billies. Yeah. Really, really big name back then. We had Squire, we had Idol, we had Joel. Yeah. And I think, like, this was still a time when Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day was still growing up, still working on his chops, but... We had Bill Medley kicking around, though. That's true. And then the Police Ghost in the Machine at 89. Yeah. Great album. And really, that's one thing you can say about the Police. They didn't last very long in the grand scheme of things but literally every single album that they made is like a 10 yes 100 i agree 
Except, can we, like, get rid of the last, like, I don't know, minute of message in a bottle? Yeah, no. You gotta let that one linger. <sighs> like, just send out the damn SOS already, okay? Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Nelson's always on my mind at 91. Yeah. Willie Nelson can never go wrong listening to him, especially, like, with him covering Always On My Mind. I think he do. he does a really, really great job with that one. Wasn't his his was one of his was before Pet Shop Boys though? Slightly, slightly. Because I think Pet Shop Boys was eighty four. Yeah, and originally the Pet Shop Boys version wasn't even supposed to come out. They performed it for a TV special on the BBC that was all about Elvis. They played the song live first, and then afterwards, people liked it so much that they decided to just do it in the studio, and it became a huge hit for them interesting yeah uh, and then and then more can come with paul carrick at 94 yeah number 97 we see soft cell with uh one of two entries on the chart uh, non-stop ecstatic dancing and this wasn't the one with tainted love on it no that's correct yeah and soft cell is another group that i feel like really didn't get their due yes they did have some radio airplay but it's more their influence than anything because again a majority of bands that i listen to they have cited soft cell as an influence or even covered them yeah um the other one i noticed here uh right above that uh success hasn't spoiled me yet from rick springfield was at 96 and like the thing with rick springfield is nine times out of ten you're gonna think jesse's girl yeah Another unfortunate one-hit wonder, but you'd be surprised at how many people I love Rick I wouldn't say one-hit wonder, though. There are other songs that did crack the top 40. True, but... Like, Don't Talk to Strangers was on this album. Yeah, but from what I've heard about Rick Springfield is that he is a songwriter's songwriter. True. But he had some, like, just quickly looking at the... at his discography there were other songs that made it into the top 40 i've done everything for you love is all right tonight what kind of fool am i uh affair of the heart human touch just to name a few sounds like i need to listen to more rick springfield i i would say so i've done everything for you is a fantastic song oh i believe it yeah yeah definitely definitely one to check out we also got the rock in three it- soundtrack yeah, I was just about to mention that in right at the number 100. And continuing down, more Alabama. Ooh, Def Leppard High and Dry at number 107. Yes, uh, had already been on the charts for 32 weeks. Only peaked at 38, though. Yeah, it's it's weird. But again, you know, when you think Def Leppard, what's the first album that you think of? Well, yeah. Probably Hysteria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hundred uh, percent. And then Loverboy with Loverboy at number one ten. It had been kicking around for a year and a half at this point. Yeah, and I have this album too. It, it, you know, it's one of those quintessential like Canadian albums that if you have any Loverboy album and you're, you know, living in Canada and whatnot, it's probably Loverboy. Yeah, like Loverboy and Get Lucky. Every every Canadian should have those two albums in their record collection. Number one hundred and thirteen, Journey with Escape. Another album that I have was at number one, and of course it has Don't Stop Believing. 
Yes. Oh, so former coworker, still friend Luke. He uh, told he told the story as to why he hates "Don't Stop Believing" so much, and it goes back to when he was working in retail, and it was ruined by the fact that I think a boss of his would always put in like the Glee CD that included that one. Ooh. I can't say as I blame him. Oh, f in the chat, Luke. F in the chat. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon at 116 had been on for 437 weeks at this point. And would still keep going well into the 2000s. <laughs> like, there was no stopping Pink Floyd with that one. There really isn't. But, again, I, I say this a lot on this podcast, but if you really want to listen to Pink Floyd, don't just listen to Dark Side of the Moon. Yes, check it out, but check out the rest of their stuff, too, because each each individual Pink Floyd album is perfect in its own way. Yeah, absolutely. And then Foreigners 4 album at 124. Ooh, that's another one I have. Not surprised. Yeah, well, it, it is one of their best albums. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, and then what else we got? Stevie Wonder's original Musiquarium 1 at number 127. Yeah, Stevie Wonder is another artist that I really need to deep dive into. So many great songs a brilliant musician. Agreed. Uh, Duran Duran's Carnival was at 133. Yeah, and I think Rio is further down in this chart too. And number 134, Van Halen, Diver Down. Just got to take a second. R.A.P. Eddie Van Halen. Yes, yes, absolutely. That was a big loss in the musical world for sure. 2020, man. Oh, let's not even start. Yeah. <laughs> Olivia Newton-John's Physical was at 137. Another banger of an album. Uh, can, do we use that word with Olivia Newton-John? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> a banger of an album from her? Well, you're not going to turn the radio if physical ever comes on, right? It's kind of annoying. A little bit annoying, but probably not. Yeah. I got a good cover of the song I'll show you later. Okay, and then there's Rio at 144 from Duran Duran, as you mentioned. Yep. And 140, Ozzy Osbourne with Blizzard of Oz, probably the best of his solo albums. I would agree with that one. And then uh, down at 150, Hall & Oates, Private Eyes. Oh, I love, love, love Hall & Oates. Private Eyes, one of my favorites from them. Agreed. Yeah, but what is your favorite Hall & Oates song? Uh... Private Eyes would be up there. Uh, the other one, you know, if I'm in the mood for like more ballady, I'll listen to She's Gone. That is a great one. I'd have to say, between it's either between Private Eyes, Adult, Out of Touch, Out of Touch, Out of, yeah. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah, there's just, it's it's so hard to choose. They have so many great songs. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and then the Pointer Sisters, so excited, 153. And I just can't hide it. it. It's another album that you just, like, can't... You you can't not dance to it. Oh, totally. Totally. Uh, also had Genesis with Abacab at 155. Ooh, got that one. 
You got to. Yeah, I got you to. got to have Abacab. Yeah, and the the police with uh, Zenyatta Mondata, which I also have. You have a lot from '82, right? And I think there's still a few albums left that we still have to go have to see. That. Oh yeah. Well, that's what you ha- what happens when you have a 200 chart. Yeah. How about uh, Toronto? Toronto was Toronto's our next round of CanCon with Get It On Credit. Yeah. And Toronto, what do you think about Toronto? Um, you know, they're all right. I, I think we hear your daddy don't know a little too much. Yeah. Um, when there's other songs that could easily be played, like um, even the score, uh, Girls' Night Out, All I Need. There's a few in there. Yeah. Oh, number 181. Yet another album in my record collection, Jay Giles Band Freeze Frame, which is their oh. best album, hands down. Oh, for sure. Not even going to argue you on that one. Yeah. More CanCon kicking around at number 186, Aldo Nova. Right. Yeah. Who could forget Aldo Nova? What, probably well, apparently you almost forgot. guitar players for Canada. Oh, totally. Totally. And I'm surprised that there's a bunch of people out in Alberta that will gladly listen to Aldo Nova considering he's from Montreal. Shh, don't tell him. (laughs) Well. Yeah, and then we got, uh, oh, 185, Soft Cell again with Nonstop Erotic Cabaret, and this is the one that has Tainted Love on it. Oh, yes. And... Are you still there? Yes, right Oh, and we got two great albums rounding out to the bottom of the Billboard 200. Number 199, Queen with Hot Space. This is uh, their more disco-y album. Yeah. And I think very underrated in their in their catalog. And Talk Talk with The Party's Over. And Talk Talk is a band that I've really fallen in love with since, like, first kind of deep diving more into 80s music earlier this year. Oh, um. Again, it's uh, it's another one that you don't necessarily think of right away. Like, what do you think, 80s Talk Talk? But yeah, they're a great band. They are. But I would say that It's My Life, only their second best song, in my opinion. Their absolute 100% best all-time best song ever, hands down, period, would have to be Life's What You Make It. Okay. It's been a while since I've heard that song. Yeah, it doesn't get any any airplay anymore, which is a shame. Like... Any classic radio program directors, listen to this song. Add it to rotation. It's so good. All right, John Cougar, American Fool, still the number one? I would actually say yes. Like, a lot of the other great albums had already, like, taken their taken their highlights before. But, you know, John Cougar, like, it's a great, great album. Really good Heartland rock. I think it's something that pretty much any kind of music listener, no matter what genre that you like, you're going to find something that you like about this album. Couldn't agree with you more on that one. Looking back at both these album charts and on the history of some of these strange instruments really gave me an itch to deep dive back into some progressive rock. One of my all-time favorite genres, and certainly well-respected, but I feel like it's one that people forget is still going. If you've never explored prog rock, I've got some great albums to tell you about so you can start checking it out too. Unlike a lot of other genres, progressive rock basically has one single starting point, King Crimson. Inspired a little bit by the Moody Blues classical takes on psychedelic rock, 
King Crimson combines rock sounds with classical and jazz sensibility, completely removing any blues sounds that developed rock music beforehand, and greatly extending song times for their debut album, In the Court of the Crimson King. This is the album that started progressive rock and a majority of proc bands, and even some outside artists cite this album as one of their biggest influences. Progressive rock quickly got less dark and even more fun for new listeners in 1971 when Yes released their fourth studio album, Fragile, starting with their signature song, Roundabout. Turned into a meme in recent years, but still an amazing track that grips you from start to finish and holds up just as well today as it did back then. If you want your prog with some more of a stadium sound to it, this is the album for you. The genre has evolved even more into the 90s and 2000s as well. Throughout the 90s, the torch was passed to Boston's Dream Theater, making a much heavier take on the sounds of Rush, Yes, and Pink Floyd thanks to their love of heavy metal. To really get a feel for what makes Dream Theater so great, give a listen to Images and Words and Metropolis Part 2 Scenes from a Memory, a concept album that acted as a sequel for one song off of Images and Words, and was inspired by other albums like Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime, Radiohead's OK Computer, and Genesis The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. The other band that carried progressive rock into the 21st century is Porcupine Tree. Formed by Stephen Wilson in the 90s and starting with a psychedelic slash space rock sound reminiscent of Pink Floyd, Porcupine Tree's music evolved and dove into heavier territory in the 2000s. The starting point that I suggest for new listeners is their 2005 album, Deadwing. And if you're looking for the peak of intense playing and heaviness, check out bands like Animals as Leaders and Periphery to start out with. Animals as Leaders is entirely instrumental, taking elements of progressive rock and metal with guitar shredding that will awaken something that you felt when you first heard Eddie Van Halen for the first time. May he rest in peace. Periphery actually takes things closer to metalcore territory. And if you're a fan of emo, pop punk, or metalcore, I think they are a great starting point for you to enter into progressive rock. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to The Tim Gavin Show wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can rate and review me where you can, and like the podcast on Facebook. Links in the show notes along with all my sources, music credits, and further listening. Additional production for Still the Number One by Scott Mitchell. I'm Tim Gavin. Talk to you next time.